Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Shout out to the wonderful Eddie Diamond for taking you through mornings today on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull, this show is Out of the Box, and today I'm chatting to Robin Kennedy. Robin is a proud 78er, which is to say she took part in Sydney's first Mardi Gras march in 1978. Robin is a radical, and she's spent a lifetime addressing social inequity through her activism, as well as through her senior roles in government and not-for-profits. She'll be joining the original 1978 Mardi Gras marches to share their stories via Zoom as part of this year's Mardi Gras festival. But if you can't wait until then, she's here right now to talk all about it for Out of the Box. Thanks for joining me today, Robin. Thanks for inviting me. Robin, Sydney's Mardi Gras festival looks very different now to how it began. Can you tell me what it was like in the lead up to the 1978 march? Well, it was a time that was quite different to now. Um, homosexuality was still illegal and there were no anti-discrimination provisions. Uh, it was very difficult for people to be out for fear of retribution. If people were outed, they often lost their job, particularly if they were in teaching or medical professions. Or they could get kicked out of home, as many young people did. Uh, So it was very difficult. Uh, So people did tend to stay in the closet a bit. Um, But there were were options and alternatives for people. There were organisations for people to become involved with. Most of those flew under the radar because of the legal situation. So it was... It was an interesting time in a way because many of us felt it was necessary to speak out. So we did have rallies and marches, various confrontations with the police uh, at these events. So 1978 wasn't the first by any means uh, in terms of a public demonstration or activity. Many had happened prior to that. The thing that distinguishes 78 is the level of violence perpetrated by police, which was shocking and had a profound effect on the future of the movement. Walk me through what happened on the 24th of June, 1978. Well... A few of us had received some correspondence, letters in those days, there was no email, (laughs) letters from some activist groups in the US reaching out to people they knew across the world, asking them to commemorate in some way the ninth anniversary of the Stonewall riots. So a number of organisations of the, the time, not that there were that many, But there was camp and there was gay lib and a few campus groups got together and decided we would come up with a couple of events to commemorate the anniversary of Stonewall. So in the morning we had a march, just our 
usual type of march, protest rally, through the city streets. But we decided to do something a little bit different in the evening to have what we called a street party. And that was had a couple of purposes. One was just to have a bit of fun, just to take over the streets and enjoy ourselves and just for a minute not worry about all the issues and the problems. And it was an invitation for people that didn't feel comfortable participating in public demonstrations because it was under cover of darkness. We encouraged people to wear costumes and makeup and wigs so that they could be there but in a sense anonymous. It was a chance for them to participate in a non-threatening way. And what did those costumes look like? Are they similar to the ones that people wear at Mardi Gras now? Oh, no, they were really hopeless. Um, <laughs> it was just whatever people could find in their wardrobes, nothing like today, which you know, people have spent a year making with sequins. Uh, no, these were just what people could drag out of the wardrobe. So there were fur coats and ugly hats and capes I don't know where people got their capes from <laughs> but and really bad wigs you know would shame a drag queen uh, the outfits that some people had on so but of course the lesbians didn't get dressed up we were too serious for that we just wore our duffel coats because <laughs> it was in winter then uh, it was actually quite a cold night uh, yeah but it was it was quite fun and so everyone except the lesbians is all dolled up mm-hmm. and they meet in Taylor Square. Mm-hmm. And what happened next? Well, we started to move down Oxford Street, led by a truck. It was a flatbed truck and it played the same two songs over and over because that's basically all we could uh, organise in time. We began walking down Oxford Street. We had the police on the sidelines hassling us and telling us to hurry up, which we ignored. They were harassing the driver of the truck to do the same thing, to speed up. And when we got down to Hyde Park, the police confiscated the van and attempted to drag the driver out of the truck. The lesbians weren't very happy about that, so they fought back to try and stop that happening. And because we'd been in a really party mood, it was a joyous mood, there was a lot of resentment and anger because we had a permit uh, to be there. So because of that intervention, uh, we decided we would storm off up to the cross, which is what we did. Um... But when we got to the El Alamein fountain at the Cross, uh, we were surrounded by police. Dozens and dozens and dozens of police who had removed their identifying badges so they couldn't be uh, named, and lots and lots of paddy wagons. And we were actually had started to disperse now that most of the fun was over. But that's when the police intervened and began physically attacking people. 
so pushing them over and kicking them and dragging the women by their hair and throwing people headfirst into paddy wagons. Uh, it was very, very ugly uh, and we fought back uh, as a group, um, led again by the women. Uh, so it was a bit of a tug-of-war tug campaign, the police on one side, us on the other side, trying to stop that person being arrested and carted away. We also rescued a number of people from the paddy wagons, uh, got the doors open and dragged them out. But um, despite our best efforts, we were outsized. And that night, 53 people were arrested. And they got taken back to the police station. But that, that wasn't the end of it for you, was it? You, no. You went there as well. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yes, they were taken back to uh, Darlinghurst Police Station. And Darlinghurst uh, police were notorious as thugs. Um, and they used to intimidate in businesses to get payoffs. So they were held there and many of us stayed that all night outside uh, Darlinghurst Police Station singing songs and just trying to encourage the people inside because we could hear shrieks coming from inside with people being bashed up. So it was very harrowing. And then around dawn, the women, a number of women were transferred to Central Court, but there were people waiting for them as well. And then it sort of went on for months, actually, the whole saga. When, when the charges were uh, read at court on the Monday, uh, we, there were hundreds of people turned up there, but the police would not allow access into the court, even though the magistrate had told them it, the door should remain open. And more people were arrested then. And then the Sydney Morning Herald got involved as well, didn't they? That's right. They published the names of the people that had been arrested on the Saturday night. Ages, uh, addresses, occupations, so completely outed all of those people. At that time, was, was the impact of that more severe than what it would be now? Absolutely devastating for some people. Yeah. Uh, people lost their jobs, they got kicked out of homes. Some people lost their tenancies, even though that would be illegal now. Uh, and sadly, some people took their own lives. The following year, the decision is made to do Mardi Gras again. Why do you think that happened? I think because of what happened. I think if, if we hadn't gone through that experience that really galvanised us all into action. I think the Mardi Gras parade would have been a one-off because we did it as a specific response to a commemoration for the Stonewall riots. But because of what happened, we were determined to have it again. Did a lot of people support that decision? Not everybody. Um, the gay businesses weren't very happy about it because at that time they were flying under the radar and they did not want to draw attention. So they weren't very supportive of having it again. 
but it was held and this time there was no disturbance by the police. And then it just kept going. Describe the mood the following year, the 1979 rally. Had it shifted? I think we we weren't sure what yeah. was going to happen. So we had plenty of bail money on hand uh, and we just hoped that it would go okay and the same thing didn't happen. So, but, so there was that mix of excitement but also trepidation uh, that we would go through the same thing again. But as it turned out, it was incident-free and it was great. It was, we were on a high. Could you have expected Sydney's gay and lesbian Mardi Gras to evolve to what it is now? Absolutely not. <laughs> there is no way we imagined it would still not only still be here but be so fabulous. Mm. Uh, our parade is quite unique in the world. I've been to quite a few around the world pride parades and there's nothing like ours. It is so spectacular and the amount of time people put into their costumes and their floats, uh, it is quite a spectacle. Uh, but also the festival is amazing. The, the program each year is really good. Obviously this year it's much more limited, but it, yeah. it's grown enormously. Um, I think the program just keeps getting better and better as well. And part of the program is obviously the parade. Mm. One of the floats in the parade is the police in uniform. What do you think about the police marching in the parade? I've sort of changed my views a little bit on that. Um, I have been in the past quite supportive of the police being in the parade because it's essentially members of our own communities. So gay, lesbian, trans officers... Uh, gay and lesbian liaison officers. So I've been quite supportive. But I've shifted my position a bit now. Uh, I don't have any objection to them marching as a group, but I think it might be time for them to stop wearing their uniforms because I think the uniform now is associated with things like deaths in custody, um, and over-policing, over-zealot policing of events. So I think it might be time to lose the uniform. There's nothing wrong with them marching as a group and having a banner saying New South Wales Police, but I think I'd like to see the uniform go. Let's go back to the March of 1978. You said that the truck you were marching down with was playing two songs, and you've chosen one to play on the show today. What was it? This is, song is Ode to a Gym Teacher by Meg Christian. Uh, Meg was one of the founders of Olivia Records, which was founded in the early 70s by radical lesbian musicians. So it was an all-women company, uh, the production side as well as the talent. And this was just a really lovely, light, funny song that uh, we picked to play for the parade. Great, well, let's jump into that one now on FBI Radio 94.5. She was a big, tough woman, the first to come along that showed me being 
a notepad and I inked it on my dress And I etched it on my locker and I carved it on my desk And I painted big red hearts with her initials on my books And I never knew till later why I got those funny looks She was a big time woman, the first to come along that showed me being female but just still could be strong. And though graduation meant that we had to part, she'll always be a player on the ball field of my heart. <laughs> well, in gym class, while the others talked of boys that they loved, I'd be thinking of new aches and pains a teacher had to rub. And while other girls went to the prom, I languished by the phone. Calling up and hanging up if I found out she was home. She was a big time woman. And some daisies in the spring Some suggested points for Christmas by Miss Edna Malay And a lacy, lacy, lacy card for Valentine's Day Unsigned, of course She was a big-time woman Christian on FBI Radio 94.5. That track was called Ode to a Gym Teacher and it was a selection by my guest on Out of the Box, Interpride Board Director Robin Kennedy. Robin, when did you first become involved with activism? I was actually quite young when I decided, well I didn't really decide, I suppose no one decides to be an activism, but when I became concerned about social issues and wanting to take a stand. I was actually in high school. And at that time, Australia 
was participating in the Vietnam War, which was a completely unnecessary war that uh, the US had led. And it had claimed many young men's lives and many young men were injured. And there was a very big anti-war movement because also men, young men were being conscripted. Uh, so there was a massive anti-war movement and I became involved in that because I could see not only was conscription uh, an appalling thing to do in peacetime, but that the war itself was totally unjust and that Australia would not have even been involved in it had we not been the handmaid to the US. <laughs> so I was a bit of a radical at school, which didn't go down well since I went to a convent school. Uh, so I put up moratorium posters, uh, which was a, meant to stop the war, help put a hold on the war, a moratorium, and they rapidly got ripped down. <laughs> Uh, and then I just became involved in more and more issues, uh, women's movement, obviously, anti-uranium uh, mining, land rights. But I always wanted to find uh, some gay and lesbian organisations. But at the time, it was very difficult because there was no internet, so you couldn't just sort of Google lesbians in Piemont or anything. Um, you just had to somehow find out these things existed, which I finally did find out in about 1975. And I became a member of CAMP, which was the earliest organisation that had been established as a national organisation and the first politically oriented organisation. Uh, so I became very involved in that and uh, was a member of the management committee. I was the first female secretary uh, and I worked with some really good people in the political action group. So we did all kinds of things from public education to submissions to demonstrations uh, and I found that very rewarding. And you were at uni at that time as mm, well, weren't you? Yes, What I were was. you doing? Well, I started studying law after I finished at school and it was awful <laughs> because in those days the uh, law school was in the city. This was Sydney University, right next to the law courts and it was this really ugly Stalinist-type building where all the lecture theatres were underground uh, and the people, the students, were as up themselves as the teachers. <laughs> so it was a lonely place for me. Um, yeah, I don't suppose there was a thriving gay scene. No, not, not <laughs> as such, not as such, no. No, it was very privileged, privileged white men whose fathers were barristers or magistrates. Not very many women at the time. Uh, it just wasn't something that women tended to do then. So after two years of that, I switched 
universities and I went to the University of New South Wales and picked up arts to have a combined arts law degree. And so being part of those clubs, well not clubs, but being a part of camp, was that another way to meet other women and other gay people? Absolutely. My dreams had come true. I finally had some opportunities to meet women. Uh, We had this great thing, uh, what we called the coffee shop, which was every Wednesday night. The, well, what we called the club rooms, which was just rented premises, was turned over for women's night. And people would bring a guitar and we'd sing and we'd just have casual conversation. And it was a very good environment because people could just be felt they could be themselves and relax because it wasn't it wasn't actually safe then were gay bars a safe place for women at that time not really because the men didn't want us and most of the time they wouldn't even let us in around the early 80s hiv aids starts to impact your community as well tell me about that yes that was awful um Many of my friends died. Um, There was just like this pall had descended over the community because nobody knew who was going to be next. And even the parades during that period were... They weren't festive at all. Um, There was this sort of sombre tone to them. Um, But... I think one of the things that did come out of that was because of the impact, there was so much activism here to get the research happening, to get the funding happening, for for the government to step in, and that happened. I mean, Australia started to lead the world on research and treatment. And I think that was a direct outcome of people here just saying, no, this is not good enough. We're not going to stand by and let all these people die. So through your activism, you almost got to help in some way Mm. during that time. Yeah. I want to jump into a song by Chris Williamson. Why did you choose this one? Um, It's like the same reason I suppose I chose Ode to a Gym Teacher Um, Chris was one of the founders of Olivia Records and I can't overestimate the importance of having music written, produced and sung by lesbians at that time. Lesbians were pretty much invisible. Invisible in society, invisible in our own community and to have this have these out women singing these songs about women for women was really important to us and Chris is a great singer and she wrote a lot of great songs and her album The Changer and the Changed was Olivia's most successful record and sold 500,000 copies which is a gold record in anybody's terms, but it was never awarded uh, a gold record. (laughs) 
But this song, I just happen to particularly like this one. Well, let's play it today on Out of the Box. It's Chris Williamson and Like an Island Rising. You're listening to FBI Radio with me, Mia Hull, and proud 78er, Robin Kennedy. The crystals turning slowly, spinning lightly colored blue. And my mind is turning on you. Like an Island Rising. It was Chris Williamson on FBI Radio. Right now on Out of the Box, I am joined by Robin Kennedy. Robin, where did you grow up? I grew up in Ashfield, which at the time was a working class, very white, very Anglo suburb. Not the way it is today, where it's just so much better. It's so multicultural now. It's amazing. Nothing like that was there then. And I went to a Catholic school, 
both in junior school and high school. They were opposite each other. So I went to this school, uh, my high school was called Bethlehem College, run by the Sisters of Charity. And so that was a teaching order. And that was a very stifling environment for me uh, because I always knew what my sexuality was from a young age. And it was very much a no-no at that time, particularly, you know, with being taught by nuns. Mm. Did you tell anyone about it? No, I didn't tell anyone about it. Uh, Not really until I'd left school and found someone to talk to, which wasn't immediately after I left school. As I said, it was all very much under the radar. So I was very half-hearted about school, but I felt very detached. I mean, academically, I did fine, but I didn't feel a part of the school environment at all. And just as soon as I could escape school. And back home, you've got quite a lot of Catholicism in in your home as well, don't you? Yes, yes. So at that time, my father was very devout and my uncle, I had an uncle who was a bishop, a cousin who was a priest. So it was all very Catholic and, you know, going to Mass and all that. And that's, you know, Catholicism is very oppressive. Not that I'm au fait with it at this point, but I found it very oppressive. It's very oppressive of the self. And you're sort of imbued with guilt about everything. Uh, So I I really rebelled against it. Uh, I think you can go either way in that environment. You can absorb it and become that, or you can rebel, and it's like water off the duck's back. And I was like that. I just refused to take it on board. Uh, I just rebelled and... I mean, people could say whatever they like, but it had no impact on me at all. It pushed you to become a radical. Yes, it did. I think the best radicals actually are ex-Catholics. <laughs> yes, it really did, because I found it just totally unacceptable. And so that brings you to your decision to leave. How did your parents take that when you left? Well, I left home when I was about 19, and... That was okay because at that stage I hadn't come out. So I just did what all young people did at that time and I'm sure still do, which was have a share household. Uh, But there came a time when I just had to come out because I didn't want to hide myself any longer. Anyway, that didn't go down very well at all. And it took a couple of years for that relationship to mend itself. But then over time, they became incredibly supportive, amazingly supportive. My father, when he was still alive, used to introduce my partner, Anne, as his other daughter, which... I mean, talk about a turnaround. I was going to say, he's come full circle. <laughs> full circle. And full I, circle. I do want to talk about your relationship with Anne in a few minutes' time, but first let's jump to a song from your childhood. 
What have you chosen today? I've chosen You Don't Own Me by Leslie Gore, uh, who was a lesbian, although you never would have known from some of her songs. Her early songs were excruciating, like It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To, which was all about being upset because someone else had snagged her boyfriend. And then her sequel to that, now it's Judy's turn to cry because Bobby was back. (laughs) (laughs) They were all really awful. And then out of the blue comes You Don't Own Me, which became a sort of feminist, uh, iconic song. It's a gay anthem now. Gay anthem. Well, let's jump into it then. This is Leslie Gore on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called You Don't Own Me. You don't own me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other Leslie Gore and You Don't Own Me on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull and right now on Out of the Box, I am joined by the wonderful Robin Kennedy. Robin, just before we were talking about you reconciling with your family since coming out and introducing them to your long-term partner, Anne. Tell me about Anne. Well, I had known Anne for about five years before we became an item. We've been together 26 years so far. Um, I met her on the north coast of New South Wales. Some close friends of mine 
moved there out of Sydney and I would often visit them. And when I was getting to know her, we were both in other relationships at the time, so it wasn't good timing for us. But I always thought she could do so much better than the person she was with. (laughs) And of course she did, eventually. And then it just happened. One of these friends was having a birthday party, so I went there. And at that stage, I wasn't in a relationship, and Anne wasn't either. And just sort of clicked and went from there. And for a while, we would commute. I would go up there on weekends, or she would come down to Sydney. And I think after about six months or so, she moved to Sydney, um, not just to save the commuting, but also she lived in Lismore and career opportunities were thin on the ground and she'd been in the same job for a long time, so was looking for something else. And how long has it been now? Uh, 26 years. 26 years, congratulations. (laughs) I understand for Anne's 40th birthday you made her a very special present. What was it? I made her a video, which was a compilation of photos, starting from her childhood, so baby photos right up to what was then the present day, and I did it thematically, so I would group like photos together, and I put two songs on it uh, as the background. Uh, One of them was My Girl by the Mamas and the Papas and the second was a Dusty Springfield song because Dusty, of course, uh, was also a lesbian and a fantastic singer, uh, strongly influenced by soul and blues. She had an amazing voice uh, and I like this song. Well, let's play it now for Anne on Out of the Box This is Dusty Springfield and I only want to be with you.
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming online. That song was by Dusty Springfield, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Robin Kennedy from the infamous 1978 Mardi Gras March. Are you still involved much with activism now, Robin? Uh, very much so. Uh, I was on the board of Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras for a couple of years, up until oh, fairly recently, 2019. And while I was on the Mardi Gras board, I uh, led our bid for World Pride 2023, which we won. But also the World Pride campaign uh, really got me involved in Interpride, which is the global association for Pride organisations. Um, I find it really, really interesting working at the international level. I'm now a member of the board as a vice president because uh, there's so much still wrong in other countries in terms of the treatment of our communities. I mean, we've come a long way in 40 years. But what, what we experienced 40 years ago is still happening in so many places in the world, in Asia, in Africa, in Eastern Europe, Chechnya. I mean, you can just tick them off. So for me, working at the international level, uh, I find very rewarding. It sort of takes me out of where we're at here. I think it can easily become a bit complacent, uh, particularly if you didn't live through uh, a bad history like we, we had 40 years ago. So it keeps me sharp and keeps me remembering that there's still so much to do. Uh, so I'm very involved in that organisation. I lead a number of things and I keep very much in contact with people doing it tough around the world. Is that where Oceana Pride comes from? Yeah, I set up Oceania Pride last year. So the Interpride structure is such that regions uh, tend to set up their own networks. So because I had become more active and I was this region's representative on the Global Advisory Committee prior to being on the board, I thought, well... Oceana should do what other regions do and pull together a network of prides. So uh, I just started contacting organisations and then we began monthly meetings around the middle of last year and they're still going. It's fantastic. We've got Samoa and Papua New Guinea and Guam and French Polynesia, all of these countries because we have to remember seven of the 20 countries in Oceania, still homosexuality is still illegal. So it's really important for those people to have connections and feel supported. You've spent your lifetime advocating for the LGBT community. What do you hope for the future? Well, I hope that we keep working hard on addressing the global experiences of our communities where homosexuality is still illegal, there's still so much discrimination, 
There's horrific things happening in some places. We had another public caning recently in Arche of two gay men. It just goes on and on. And I would love our international networks to really take it more seriously because sometimes we tend to be quite... I see things in silos and only see things in local terms rather than what other people are experiencing and how we could support them. Do you have any hopes for maybe people who aren't necessarily a part of your community but are allies of it? What what do you think other people can do to help? I think allies are absolutely critical. Mm. Um, in 1978, I don't think we would have been so successful in our campaign to have the charges dropped and the Summary Offences Act repealed had it not been for our allies. Because once the news had gotten out about the harassment and violence, other groups started joining in. So we had the Council for Civil Liberties, we had unions, we had uh, left-wing organisations, politicians, and it, it got really big. So we would end up with thousands of people at rallies and the same thing is true say of the marriage equality campaign Uh, it's it's growth and support really depended on allies and I think we certainly you know there is absolutely every campaign must have allies to gain the momentum and I'm sure there will be a lot of allies taking part in Sydney's gay and lesbian Mardi Gras this year Um, Due to COVID restrictions, this year's Mardi Gras will be held at the Sydney Cricket Ground on Saturday the 6th of March. Tickets to that event have temporarily been put on hold, but the SBS will be broadcasting the event live, so you can watch it from home. Robin will be joining the original 1978 Mardi Gras marches to share their stories via Zoom as part of the festival, so be sure to tune in and hear more of Robin's incredible story on the TV. You'll get to see her beautiful face as well. (laughs) Oh, stop, stop. (laughs) You've only got to hear her voice today, but I I assure you she's wonderful. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for joining me today on Out of the Box. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mia. And what song would you like to end on? I'd like to end on a Melissa Etheridge song. Uh, This is the song that she came out with from her Yes I Am album. So I've selected the title track. The title track to that one is Yes I Am by Melissa Etheridge. Thanks for listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. And don't go anywhere. Brie Kennedy is up next to take you through lunch. Thanks. Bye. Come and check out in a hurry Shallow and hollow again Come lay your body beside me To dream, to sleep with the now To the question your eyes seem to send Am I your passion, your promise, your end? I say I am, yes I am Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I am the only.
intervention There is nothing between you and And if I carelessly forgot to mention Your body, your power can sanctify Come feed the hunger, the thirst Lay it down, the beast will die You can question my heart once again Am I your passion, your promise, your end? I say I am Yes, I am Yes, I am Yes, I am Stand firm in the tempest I will write destiny's trail To believe when the truth comes up empty To hold and respect without fail Come and be one in the motion A desire they cannot comprehend Never question again For I podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.